Well, as a church, we've been going through a series in the book of Acts, and today I want to continue doing that, but I want to do it in a little bit different way. What I want to talk about today is how we as Christians are to act in light of all that's been happening in the world around us, whether it's the stuff overseas or what we see here on the streets in our own nation that has been dividing and destroying us. Uh, Many of you know that I've had a a frontline view of all that's been happening and a behind-the-scenes look. Uh, Last uh, two weeks ago, I was in Dallas to help with the chaplaincy needs and the funerals of the five officers who were killed there in Dallas in the ambush. And I appreciate all of you praying for me. Uh, There were many tough times, like sitting in the home of a new widow as I sat at the kitchen table with her and her two daughters and tried to help answer the questions of why and now what. There were also uh, bittersweet times of reunion as I was able to reconnect with old partners and brothers and uh, have those reunions. I was able to sit down with the chief and the command staff and help them in Dallas as well as many officers uh, counseling and around meals and in cars and uh, just at the headquarters just talking to them. So again, I appreciate you allowing me as your pastor to be there to minister and to uh, help with them. If you're wondering why was I there, uh, many of you know that I was a Dallas police officer myself as I worked my way through seminary. And uh, what I was able to do was uh, I had been a chaplain there as well as currently serve as a chaplain here in San Antonio for the Bear County Sheriff's Department. And so I was contacted and asked to come up and help with those needs because of my background and connection to many of them. Now, because of that background, uh, I want to tell you that as we talk this morning about the issue of race and reconciliation, that you're going to hear some things from a policeman's perspective. None of us can help but filter things through our background and who we are. But I also want you to hear that this morning, uh, the basis for what we talk about is the Bible. We're going to uh, be looking at things as God's word tells us about these things. And it's something that all of us as believers need to do. We need to filter everything, not just through who we are, but more importantly, we need to allow God's word to inform us and uh, direct how we respond to these situations. And as we look at what God's word says, it tells us that the ultimate root of everything that is happening is sin. And behind Uh, The things that are happening, we have an enemy who's named Satan. He's called the father of lies. He's called the Apollyon, which means the destroyer. And we know that he seeks to destroy. And those that he loves to attack and where he wants to destroy is the very image of God, which is who we are all created in. We as believers and as people in general just need to quit looking at the externals. We need to quit labeling each other. We need to to quit judging somebody based upon a uniform that they wear or the color of their skin or whether they're different than us. And we need to look internally. We need to look internally at who they are created in the image of God and having that value. They are image bearers of our creator. And that's how we need to see one another. So as we talk today about looking internally, I want us to look internally as well in our own hearts. And I want us to ask ourselves, is there something in in our own way of thinking, in our own heart, and how we're reacting to these things that maybe needs to be adjusted in light of what we're going to talk about today in God's Word. I want to start today in the Scriptures in the book of Matthew chapter 7, because there's a verse there in Matthew 7, 1, that I've heard quoted a lot lately, and it's one that's quoted often, uh, I should say misquoted uh, many times, because people take this verse in Matthew 7, 1 that says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. The King James says, Judge not. 
And the problem is, the reason why there's so much bad application applied to this verse is people take it out of the context of the rest of what God says. Because as you keep reading in verses 2 and following in Matthew chapter 7, it tells us, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. It says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? Of the many memorials that were taking place, of the the five funerals, there were others. Um, Community prayer events, candlelight vigils, but there was also a time where both President Obama and former President George W. Bush spoke at a memorial service. And at that memorial service, I think that President Bush made a comment that that is in line with what we're looking at here today. Uh, George W. Bush said, Too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. Too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. See, Matthew chapter 7 said, not that we're not to judge, but it says the way you judge others is the standard by which you will be judged. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what would happen if we started to use the same standard of judgment for others, like President Bush says here? What if when we see something happening, we don't immediately default to our preconceived position or where we've already drawn our lines, and instead of attributing the worst examples as representative of everybody or attributing that as their motive, we instead give them the benefit of the doubt, and we're slow to, to judge the matter and say, what was their intention? You see, as we keep reading in Matthew 7, verse 5 tells us, it says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The problem is not judgment. The problem is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, uh, that word, our English word hypocrite, comes from the Greek word hupokrino. Hupo is a preposition that means under, and krino means to judge or to pass judgment on. And a hypocrite is somebody who purports to be a certain way but then acts in a different way. And they should be under judgment. We should judge the wrong actions of others. One of the things that is fueling the protest and the anger of many is the perceived hypocrisy of some police officers. Those who report to be uh, people who protect others, people who are concerned about the rights of others, but then they... uh, in turn abuse people or abuse their authority. And I can tell you as a former policeman and one who has been uh, surrounded by cops for the last two weeks, there is no one group that you will ever find who is more angry, who is more offended by bad cops than good cops. There are over 660,000 brave men and women who put on a uniform and a badge and put their lives on the line every single day and selflessly walk out there in order to protect the rights of others, in order to stand in the gap. And when somebody who also puts on a badge uses that authority to abuse others or to hurt others, they're a hypocrite and they should be judged. But it is not for us 
to be those who decide to be judge, jury, and executioner. Because when we are those who try to take it upon ourselves, we end up with people like Micah Johnson, the man who ambushed and killed five Dallas police officers and wounded seven others. We end up with individuals like Gavin Long, who went to Baton Rouge last Sunday and killed another three police officers and wounded three more, one of which is hanging on uh, by a thread on life support. And when we become those who allow uh, a system that, yes, admittedly moves slowly and at times is broken, and we say that that legal system, uh, as bad as it is, is better than us becoming vigilantes, we end up with this. The Bible tells us this very clearly in Romans 12, 19 through 21. It says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What I see so many times and what we're seeing in the world around us is where people are angry. And they're drinking poison, hoping that somebody else will die. And that's what's happening. It's what creates the, the anger. Yes, there is righteous anger out there at some of what we see in our world. But brothers and sisters, you and I are not uh, perfect yet. When we get to heaven, we'll be made perfect. And because of that, as flawed as we are, we react sometimes uh, in ways that are not right. And before we have all of the information and before uh, things, but, but God is one who is perfect and righteous and knows all things. And he is capable of administering justice. And he will. He will make all things right in the right time. And what we as believers have to do is be those who say we're going to allow God to be the one who deals with injustice. When we try to come in and, and deal with injustice with injustice, it's like trying to clean mud off with mud. All we do is make it worse. You don't do away with darkness by adding darkness to it. You bring light into the situation, and that dispels the darkness. You don't get rid of hate by adding hate. You bring in love, which the Bible tells us love covers a multitude of sin. And what God is calling on us to do is to be those who, who are in the world but not of the world that are dealing with things and saying, God, what do you want me to do? How do we deal, deal with this? I want to show you a video here that is going to show you a situation that happened in Dallas recently. You know, one of the problems, one of the things fueling the problem in our world right now is the media where they are, are, are picking all of the bad things and, and ignoring the thousands and thousands of good things that are happening every single day. So I was glad to see this story that CNN ran recently. Watch this video. I can't just sit back and, and feel this way without trying to change it. Together, Black Lives Matter and stuff. We all matter. Hell.
It's time for us to stop this today. No more walls. Today, we're going to show the rest of the country how we came together. Everybody get it in here, man. Everybody get it in. Everybody get it in. Everybody, Everybody get it in. Everybody get it in. And I, I thank you so much, as I am so humble, that you allowed us to come a long time ago. And that today, Pray again. Thank you so much. I pray that everybody makes it. Amen. Amen. Sure, you can clap for that. So here we had two groups that were divided by more than just the street and the police in between them that were keeping them separate. They were divided by uh, their positions, their ideologies. And what happened is somebody from each group said, wait a minute. Instead of building our walls higher, instead of digging in deeper, what if we were to cross the street and talk to one another and look for common ground and say, what, what is it that we can agree on and what can we do from there? And as those two individuals went back to their groups, they were able to then say to others, we can come together, we need to come together. And we saw what happened is they came together and they ended up praying. Did you see the policemen in the circle there too and others? And you may be sitting here this morning saying, Roger, that's great. I would love to do that. But you know, I, I have a problem, Roger, because uh, when I look at a group like, say, Black Lives Matter, uh, I have a problem. Because there are people in that group that are, that are racist themselves. There are people in that group that are saying, uh, my life doesn't matter because I'm not a person of color. There are people in that group that are uh, purporting to be against injustice, and yet they're breaking the laws themselves. And so that's why I, I, I don't want to do something like that. Can I ask you all, myself included, just take a deep breath for a moment? Go ahead and do that. I want you to remember what we just talked about. Do we judge others by their worst examples or by their intentions, their best intentions? Yeah, there are people in the group of Black Lives Matters or the Black Panthers or other groups that are out there that are looking for a race war and are looking for and saying the lives of others are not equal because of past injustice. We have a right to do injustice now. Do you know what those individuals are called? They're hypocrites. They're bad cops. They are hypocrites. If somebody is in a group like Black Lives Matter and they say we are against injustice and prejudice and yet they are doing injustice and prejudice, that's a hypocrite. And you reject that. The Bible's very clear that there are people we cannot be at peace with. The Romans tells us, be at peace with all men, it says, as far as you are able, which insinuates there are some people that will not let you be at peace. The Bible warns us as believers sometimes that when we try to speak truth, it's like casting pearls before swine because it just gets trampled under. So I'm not telling you to drive around the city, find a protest, run up to the line and get screamed at. What I'm telling you, though, too, is to slow down and stop and ask yourself, what is going on? Why are people protesting? Why is there a movement like Black Lives Matter? We're talking about the need to look internally. We're talking about the need to listen, to look at somebody's heart and to hear at a heart level rather than just see externals. I'll confess to you that as a, as a white person, 
not just as a policeman, but as a white person. The first few times I heard the phrase, Black Lives Matter, there was, there was a visceral reaction where I said, of course black lives matter. I, I consider myself fairly colorblind, as colorblind as I can be. And so when I hear a statement like that, I go, I go, of course, black lives matter. So do Hispanics and Asians and Indians and all others, because we are created in the image of God. That is my view. That is my worldview and how I process life. But then I had to slow down and say, why are some people feeling the need to say black lives matter? So let me give you a few illustrations that might help you think through this at a different level. My mom died of lung cancer, and so I hate the disease of lung cancer. Now, imagine that I were to organize a fundraising event because I say, I want to eradicate lung cancer. I think it's a horrible disease. It needs to be done away with. So I organize an event. I rent a room. I have a banquet. I advertise it. I pull people together. We're raising funds. We're going to have this big uh, event, and as the, the day of the event comes, everything's set up, and I walk in the room, and people are there. But I also notice there's a group there that are holding up signs that say AIDS awareness. And and then over in another corner, there's some people I don't know who are setting up a booth. And I walk over and I say, who who are you? What are you doing? Oh, well, we're here to raise money to eradicate diabetes because it's a horrible disease. And I'm going, well, I agree that all diseases need to be cured. I'm, I'm against, you know, people suffering and dying of AIDS, and I'm against people dying of diabetes, but this, this is a, a lung cancer event. Would I, would I be upset that people are hijacking the event and changing the message? It's not that I don't believe there should be a cure for all diseases. It's just I'm saying this is something I want to bring attention to. Maybe another way to think of it is you've heard me stand in this pulpit before, And say, we have a crisis in this nation. We have over 60 million uh, babies who have been lost to the tragedy of abortion. And I believe that as believers, we need to be involved in giving a voice to the unborn. And so as I say, unborn lives matter. Are you sitting here as Christians saying, well, Roger thinks all other lives don't matter? Or are you saying, well, he's he's saying there is a, a group that is not being heard And somebody needs to stand and represent for them. And so that's why he's advocating Unborn Lives Matter. You see, those who are in the Black Lives Matter movement, again, there are bad examples, hypocrites. Let's let's remove them from the conversation for the moment. But let's understand that there are people who are saying, we are an unheard voice. There are injustices and things that are happening in this world that are hard for us to deal with. And when somebody says black lives matter and we respond, all lives matter, what they feel like is you've just brought diabetes into a, a, a lung cancer um, event. And they're saying you've hijacked the message. You've, you've pushed out or marginalized the voice of what we're trying to bring attention to. Now, I know some of you are sitting here saying, well, you know, right here. Let me put it to you a different way. What if my wife were to come to me and say, you know, Roger, I don't think you love me. Now, I can can look at my wife and and I can say, honey, uh, of course I love you. All husbands love their wives. (laughs) Don't don't try this, men. This is an example, okay? Or, Or what if I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to convince my wife with logic and facts. I mean, you know, she's being irrational. She's not thinking clearly. So I, I said, honey, listen, 28 years ago, I, I put a ring on your finger. 
And I said, I love you. And we became a husband and wife. Since, since that time, I've never dated another woman. I've never slept with another woman in my life who was not you. I've, I've never told you I don't love you. So, of course, you can see how wrong you are because the weight of the facts and logic are going to make her say, well, uh, I shouldn't feel unloved. Is that going to help? I swear you shake your head, no, man. It's not going to help. <laughs> and yet that's what some of us are doing right now, Right? You, you look at social media. I wish it would just go away. You know, social media, people are posting on their walls. Somebody puts a study or a statistic up and somebody counters with theirs and they counter with... And you know what we're doing is we're talking at each other rather than with each other. And then you add to the problem that these internet trolls, many are, who are people that don't even know you or aren't even in your circle, they find a thread and they drop a, a bomb in on your thread and then all these other people connect to that and pretty soon your whole page is blowing up with all this stuff and, and you're going, what's happening? You know, what's happening is the Bible tells us in James 1.19, it says, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. But what's happening is we're seeing something and we respond to it. And an event happens on the news and we immediately attribute the worst example and forget the best intentions and what somebody may have been going through. And we fail to see things from the other person's perspective. And in the midst of all of this is our enemy, Satan, who is called the father of lies and the destroyer. And he's having a heyday saying, I've got everybody fighting everybody and the issues are being buried and believers are hating believers and non-believers are being pushed away by Christians who think they're doing okay. And all they're doing is, is, is just adding fuel to the fire. And what God says is we need to come in and start pulling the logs off the fire to help extinguish it, not adding to it. The Bible tells us in Psalm, in, uh, Psalm 133, 1, Behold how pleasant and good it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And Satan is one who wants to destroy that unity. He wants to rip us apart. And what we need to do is we need to start listening. Just as I would sit down with my wife and, and not try to convince her with logic or facts or things, I would say, Honey, I've obviously hurt you. She's smiling at me. This isn't a, a marriage counseling session. I'm just saying, <laughs> honey, I've obviously hurt you. And what I would do is I would say, what, what have I done to make you feel not loved? And I would listen. And if my wife said something to me that, that I go, you know, I did do that, or I have neglected you in that way, the proper response for me would be repentance. Repentance. Repentance, by definition, is, is the word the Bible uses that says when we sin and we, we recognize we're going in the wrong direction, we literally stop, we have a change of mind that leads to a change of action, and then that action is demonstrated by turning around and going back in the other direction. When we sin, we walk away from God, and repentance is where we stop, we recognize we need to come back to him, we confess that sin and go to him. Or in the case of a non-believer, they recognize their need for God in their life in the first place and come to him and receive the gift of eternal life. And when I'm sitting down with somebody, when somebody says to me, Roger, black lives matter, if I say all lives matter, I just put the wall up. What I need to do instead is say, I'm listening. What has happened in your life that has made you feel your life is not valued? Take it a step deeper and say, what have I personally done to hurt you? Is there something that I've done that's made you feel not loved, not important, 
Because if I have, I'm wrong and I want to apologize. Now, I'm not telling you to sit down with the individuals who, who want to say that you've got to change uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of wrong that you are saying, I, I didn't do any of that. I wasn't here. My forefathers aren't even from this country. We don't go there. What we do is we keep it at the level where we say, what can I do? How have I hurt you? And if there is something that you've done, you need to repent of it, friends. And you need to say, I was wrong and I want to make things right. And when we do that, what we do is we tear down the walls like we saw in that video. And as that rubble from our walls is down, you know what happens is we can use that as a bridge. And we can begin to build a bridge to one another. And more importantly, we can then begin to build a bridge that points people to the one who said in John 14, 6, Jesus Christ, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we're able to say to the person, you tell me black lives matter. And they do. They matter not only to me, but they matter even more to my God. My God, who the Bible says in Romans 5 eight, demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for me. And you say, God thought your life was so important that he left his throne in heaven and he came to earth and he walked among us and he entered into the suffering of this world and the muck and the mire and he gave his life on the cross to be the payment for your sin. You know, I see people arguing out there about, well, that person, you know, fought the cop and he had a rap sheet and this and that. And why do we go there? Somebody's saying there's a life that has been lost. And yes, we can proof text everything. But you know what I say to somebody who says, you know, well, that person was a career criminal. I say, you know what? So am I. I wasn't a bad cop. But what I say is the Bible tells me that I'm a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It tells us in Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, no, not one. And so what I say is, I am a career criminal. I'm a sinner. And I'm deserving of judgment. And what I do not want from God is justice. Because justice says in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. And because I am a sinner, if I get God's justice, what it means is I will be separated from him for all eternity and sent to hell. And what I instead say to the person is, I am thankful that I have a God who demonstrated mercy. Mercy, by definition, is not giving me what I deserve. But our God went a step farther and he demonstrated grace, which means giving to us what we don't deserve. What we don't deserve is a place at the table as a son or a daughter, one who's been welcomed into heaven as a part of the family. But because Jesus took our place and he went to the cross and he died to pay that penalty of death, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what I say is I'm thankful that we have a God who thought your life and my life mattered enough to leave heaven and come to earth and take our place and pay our penalty of sin. And what God wants is reconciliation, us with him and us with one another. If you want to see what God says and why he came, you can look at Ephesians chapter 2. Because in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, it tells us this. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Do you know what that's telling you? God's defining races. He says there is a race called Gentiles. And there is a race called Jews. These are two different racial groups. He says you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called on circumcision by the so-called circumcision, the Jews, 
That's who they are with the sign of the covenant, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. He says, remember that you at that time as Gentiles were separate from Christ. That's called segregation. We We were barred from being a part of the group. You were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, what a beautiful connective word, but... Now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. If you were here when we went through Acts chapter 10, you'll recall that I took you on a tour of the temple and explained in depth what this means. You can listen to that sermon on our website if you were not here. But here's a model of the the temple that was there in Jerusalem. And where you see that arrow on the side of the screen is what was called Solomon's portico. This was the the place where uh, all the nations could come and approach God in prayer. And then you see that little wall next to it. That was called the balustrade. And that was literally the wall of separation. It had a a statement on it that archaeologists have found that said if a non-Jew goes beyond this wall, he, he essentially has himself to blame for his own death. So there was segregation. You think of the, the injustice of the Jim Crow laws in our, in our country and, and how we had white-only places and blacks-only and things like that. This is what this was, friends. We had separation, segregation, and it said as Gentiles, we were the the ones excluded. We were out there, and we could not come into the temple. In that main building is the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was said to reside, and that was as close as we could come. Now a Jew, man or woman, could come beyond that wall. They could come into that next courtyard. They could come through that front gate that you see there, and that large exterior courtyard was called the Court of Women. And as a Jewess, a woman who was a Jew, that's as far as you could come. And then there was separation for you. Women could go no farther than that that first gate. Now, men could go beyond that gate. And as they went through that gate, there was separation for them as well. Because in that inner courtyard, there was a rail. And that rail is where they, as men, would come up with the sacrifice of the offering and they would present it to the priests and the Levites and their offering would be taken and then it would be offered on the brazen altar and and then you see the temple beyond that. But at that point, that was separation as well. It was a, a physical reminder to a Jewish man, you are separated from God because of your sin. Now, even the priests and Levites who served in that next courtyard, they were separated. Only a small amount of them were allowed to go into the temple. And as they went into the temple itself, uh, there was another reminder, another separation called the veil. The veil separated the holy of holies where God was from all of them. And they could not come and approach it because they were reminded, because of your sin, you are separated from God. And once a year, the high priest would go behind the veil with the offering of a blood offering. And he would apply it to the top of the Ark of the Covenant the mercy seat, which the, the word used is halismas, which means satisfaction. 
And he would apply the blood of, of the sacrifice on there, but it did not remove the penalty of sin. It was only uh, a temporary covering. The veil was always there to remind you that you were separated from God because of your sin. The book of Hebrews tells us clearly the blood of the sacrifices offered of bulls and goats and other things, it says, could not remove the penalty of sin. But then you'll recall when Jesus Christ came, the one that John the Baptist pointed to and said in John one twenty nine, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Jesus Christ came and he went to the cross and he gave his life, John 19.30 tells us that as he was hanging on the cross and he was dying, as he breathed his last, he said, It is finished. Is how our English Bible's translated. It's the Greek word teteleste, which literally means paid in full. What was paid in full? The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that penalty of sin. He died to cover my penalty, your penalty. And when Jesus died on the cross, do you remember what happened to the veil? The scriptures tell us it was torn in two from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. God said, I am showing the separation has been removed. You are no longer separated from me by your sin if you come to my son Jesus as your savior. And what the Bible tells us is God not only reconciled us to himself, but it says he took those who were separate from one another, Jews and Gentiles, and he brought the races together. God's ministry was not only to to bring us to uh, a restored relationship with him, but it was to restore relationship with one another because we're all created in his image. Do you remember what we've seen as we've walked through the book of Acts? The book of Acts is not just uh, the history of the church in in a missionary book, but it's also something that speaks very clearly to what we're dealing with in our country today. Because all throughout the book of Acts, you see how God was concerned about the division of the races and he brought the people together. He, co- he told us as his followers in Acts 1.8, it says, go therefore and make disciples of what? All the nations, not just of your group. It says of all the nations. And we see how when the Jews came to faith in Christ, uh, even within the, the Jews, the race, there were subgroups. Do you remember how in Acts chapter 6 we saw the uh, Hellenistic and the Hebrew Jews were fighting with one another? The Hellenistic Jews were saying, hey, we're being neglected. Our widows aren't getting fed and there was a problem and, you know, there was a language barrier and you don't care about us like you care about your own. And what did God do? Did he say be at war with each other or did he, through the Holy Spirit, give them wisdom to say we're going to raise up people in leadership from the Hellenistic Jews as well to be representative and to come in and care for one another? And then we get along to uh, Philip, we're told, was told to go to Samaria and preach the good news of the gospel. Do you remember what Samaria was? That's where the Samaritans came from. The Samaritans were a hated group of half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. That came about when uh, Israel was conquered and Syria brought in people and import, exported Jews back as captives to Syria. And there was, there was intermarrying of the two. And, and the pure Jews said, you guys are half-breeds. We don't want anything to do with you. You're mixed-race people. You're excluded from us. God not only said to Philip, I want you to go and make sure the gospel is carried into Samaria. Do you know that Jesus Christ himself did that first? Read the Gospel of John. Read John chapter 4. And you'll see that as Jesus was traveling along, he went into Samaria. And as he came into Samaria, uh, he sent the disciples away. 
probably because he knew he'd have to, to battle, you know, these these you know, Jewish guys, hey, what are you talking to this Samaritan woman? We know that happened after. They came back and go, what are you doing, Jesus? So Jesus is sitting there, and he goes up to the well, and this Samaritan woman approaches, and Jesus says to her, uh, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman responds this way in John 4, 9. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Do you see what Jesus was willing to do was sit down at the segregated lunch counter, so to speak. And he looked across at a, a person who was told, you're, you're a half-breed, you're, you're, you're less than, than, you know, equal to me. And what he said to her is, uh, ma'am, can I share your, your glass of sweet tea? I'm willing to drink out of your cup. She said, what's wrong with you? You're, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we don't do this. And as Jesus was willing to sit down at a, a, and, and, and share a drink with her, he was then able to lead into the message of living water. And he said, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink. And as you read through the chapter, you see the end result is the Samaritan woman went back, tells the whole village, hey, there's this guy here. He told me all about me and my sin and on and on. And they came and they saw. And before it was over, uh, these Samaritans were coming to faith in Christ and the disciples were being told, hey, this, this is part of what we're supposed to be doing. And then we see that in the book of Acts, God is very clear that's what we're supposed to be doing. Not only did he tell Philip, go down there and make sure the gospel is preached to the Samaritans, but I want you to fast forward to Acts chapter 10. And do you remember what happened where we had Peter? Peter staying in the home of somebody. He has his vision where this blanket is let down out of heaven and it had all this unclean food. Remember that? And, and God tells Peter, hey, get your first bacon cheeseburger, you know? And, and Peter says, God, I'm a good Jew. I don't, I don't eat unclean food. And, and God says, hey, what I say is clean is clean, whether it's food or people. And God was teaching Peter what he was about to be told to do because then these, these Gentiles, they were even worse than the Samaritans because at least Samaritans were half Jewish. These were, these were Gentiles. And they knock on the door and they say, hey, we need you to come back because God told Cornelius, uh, a Gentile, that you had the, uh, a message for us. Peter, you'll recall, gathers together some Jews. They head over to Cornelius's house. They get there. There's Cornelius, his family, his friends. And what did Peter say? You know, as a Jew, it's not really lawful for me to be here because Jews don't eat with Gentiles. And on, it sounds like the Samaritan woman, right? But he says... God has shown me something. What I used to think was to be separated and unclean, he's told me that's not the case. And he had a meal with them, and he shared the gospel with them. And the result was the Gentiles came to faith. Now, everybody celebrated about that, right? Do you remember what happened next? Word gets back to Jerusalem, to the headquarters, and to Antioch, where all this stuff is, you know, the base of evangelism is going on. And there were people there who were angry. And they said to Peter, what are you doing? Jews don't eat with Gentiles. And it became such a big issue, the Jews saying, well, if you're going to let them in the church, well, then they have to do things our way, and they're going to have to be circumcised. We're going to have to... And then we had the Jerusalem Council. You remember that? There's first church council. Everybody convenes. They, they seek the Lord in it. And God says, listen, they're full members of the church without becoming like you. And we'd say, okay, well, that matter was settled. It's all over, right? No. Read Galatians chapter 2. 
Because in Galatians chapter 2, there's a time where things are rocking along. Well, then there comes a point where Peter, and remember Barnabas? Remember our guy Barney, the son of encouragement, the guy who was always first in, the guy who was always taking the least and the lost, and he was their friend? And it tells us that the Judaizers, these super Jews, who were saying, you know, the Gentiles, you know, they're not full members. They need to, and, and he comes in and he sees them having a meal, fellowship meal together. And the peer pressure and the prejudice overrides what Peter has been told directly by God. And it says that Peter kind of says, we're okay, we're going to quit eating with the Gentiles. And it says, because of Peter's example, even Barnabas was drawn away. And everybody else starts getting drawn away. And it would have been the end of unity in the church, right? Until the Apostle Paul parachutes in. You want to talk about a super Jew, that was Paul. Remember Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the guy who was persecuting the church? on Paul shows up on the scene, and what does he say? Read Galatians chapter 2. He calls it what it is. He says, your hypocrisy. You claim to be one who represents the Lord, living for the Lord, doing the things of the Lord, and look at what you're doing. Your actions betray you. You're a hypocrite. And it tells us Paul opposed them to his face. That's a a loose translation for there was going to be a throwdown. And he says to Peter, you are out of line, you're wrong, and I'm going to call it what it is, and you stop it. And thankfully, Peter and Barnabas and the rest said, you're right. We need to be doing what God wants us to do, not what people want us to do. And the unity was restored, the gospel continued to go forward, and and things continued to grow in the church. And as we talk today about what it means for us to be believers, God is calling us to stand in the gap, to stop being those who are adding to the division, throwing fuel on the fire, being those who are being pressured by our friends, you know, don't be around those kind of people, they're not like us, and they're not this and that. And instead, we're called to stand in the gap and to be those who quit seeing the externals and instead see the internal. As 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God doesn't see the externals. He sees the heart. And we need to look into the heart of another and say, you are created in the image of God. You have eternal value. And I want you to know what God wants you to know, that you are loved and you are important. Yes, black lives matter to me and to my God. And if you're somebody sitting here today And you're saying, you know, Roger, I'm still just not comfortable being around people who aren't like me. Well, if you're a Christian, you better get used to it. Because as you read Revelation 7, 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. This is heaven This is a glimpse into heaven. And what it says is we're going to be there with people who are black and Hispanic and Asian and Indian and every other color you can think of. Whether you're white or another color, we're going to be together. Now, the good news is when we get to heaven, we're glorified, we're made perfect. There isn't going to be any problem of racism in heaven. But for those of us who are here who understand God's heart and what he wants us doing, we we can begin to enjoy the diversity and the richness of the relationships that God wants us to have right now. I want us to end today by going to the communion table. And I want us to come to the communion table for two reasons. 
One is that it reminds us of how we were reconciled to God. What God did to take somebody like me, a sinner, somebody like you, a sinner, and say the separation is removed and that you can be with me for all eternity in heaven. But another reason I want us to think about the communion table this morning is is if you've ever read through the scriptures, you find that a lot of what we're talking about happened around meals, didn't it? In fact, you'll recall that the communion celebration itself came out of the Passover meal. Jesus was sitting down at the Last Supper celebrating Passover with his disciples. It was a meal, it was a setting where he said, I want you to understand, I'm going to take common everyday elements to point you to what I'm doing for you. And as you think about sitting down at a table with somebody, this is what we need to do as well. Not only point people to the cross of Christ and the reconciliation that comes through that, but it's wonderful that we sit here in a church right now and I look out and I see people of multiple ethnicities here. And you know, as a church, we have a a, a multiple year, decades long relationship with Maranatha Bible Church in Converse. We do a pulpit exchange. Uh, Pastor Rander Draper is a good friend and a brother of mine. We talked about going on vacation together this summer. We, I didn't get a vacation, but we were going to go on vacation together. He's, he's, he's an African-American pastor. We're not saying today, how do, we, how do we show unity? We've already got it as a church. And this is wonderful. But what's going to happen, friends, when you walk out of the doors of Wayside, just in a few moments? Are you going to go back into your little circles and say, oh, well, Roger, I, I have a friend at you know, in the cubicle next to me, we're, we're friends, or I know somebody at school, or, you know, I, I, I wave at that, that guy or girl down the street. When is the last time you sat down and had a meal with them? When's the last time you, you asked them uh, to go a little deeper than a, a quick casual high? You read through the Bible and you think about what a meal is. A meal is not only a sign of communion. Remember how important meals were in the Bible. Remember when Joseph was eating, he was second in command of all of Egypt. And it says the Egyptians would not eat with Joseph because he was a Hebrew and it was loathsome to them. Here's the guy, he was the boss. And they said, well, you're a different race. I can't eat with you. The Samaritans, the Gentiles, Jesus wanted to share a cup. He told Peter, sit down and have a meal. Because you know what happens at a meal? Not only does it show, hey, we're family, but a meal is where you get beyond the the, the surface. I told you, don't just find the next protest and run up and say, hey, tell me what it's like to be black. That's, That's not what I'm telling you to do. But as you sit at a meal with a friend who's an African American brother, and, and as I'm talking to, to him, I don't say, well, you're black and I'm white. What I say is, hey, you're a dad and I'm a dad. Tell me about your kids. T- t- tell me about your hopes, your fears, your dreams. And we're relating to one another, not on the externals of our color. We're relating to one another based upon who we are as people. When you sit down with a friend uh, in their living room or, or over a coffee or, or some other event, you're, you're getting beyond the uh, person and saying, well, you know, uh, I like Mexican food too, and you're Mexican, so we, we have something in common, right? What, what you're doing is saying, hey, tell me about your experience. T- tell me about what it was like for you growing up. 
And suddenly we start connecting at a heart level and we say, I understand why you feel there's these issues. I understand why you've had these experiences. And sometimes what they end up hearing is, hey, guess what? We share something. In fact, your upbringing was worse than mine. And I used to think, well, you, you were this privileged white person who had, had, had an easy life. And so what we're talking about doing is connecting. When you're sitting in the stands at a sports event, you know, my kids are swimmers. And any of you who are swim parents know that's all day. And so you're there and, you know, after a while you start talking about life. And if we would start getting involved in each other's lives, there would be a bridge. There would be something that we start being able to say, I connect to you as a person, not the externals. And so as we're about to celebrate the communion meal, it's a reminder to us that we're called to sit down and have communion, not only with God our Father, but with one another. And I'm going to ask that you pass the elements now. And as they're passing the elements, I want you to look in your heart of hearts. The Bible tells us to confess our sins, to prepare ourselves, and ask yourself, is there something in me that needs to change? A prejudice, an action I've done, something I need to confess this morning to be clean as I come to this table. If you're here as a non-believer, one who's never repented and come to the cross of Christ, I want you this morning, if you're ready, to say to God, I'm turning from my sin and to you as my Savior to take the bread, saying, God, I'm accepting your son as my sacrifice. I'm taking the cup to wash away my sins. And I want us all to take and hold these elements, and we'll celebrate together in a moment.
here we hold in our hands a piece of bread. But what it represents is how important God thought we were. It represents the body of his son, Jesus Christ, the one who left his throne in heaven to come to earth, to ultimately go to the cross and give his life as the payment for our sins. As you think about God's great love for you, remember that God calls on us as his people to go and demonstrate love to others. The body of Jesus Christ needed in remembrance of him. And here we have a cup. It's a cup of juice, but what it represents is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The one who came, who gave his life. Remember the, the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews said, could not take away sins. When, when the high priest went behind the veil, the sin was not removed. It was only until Jesus Christ came. The one where in John one twenty nine, John the Baptist pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came and he removed the separation. He removed what stood between us and God and he removed the wall between us and one another. As you hold this cup and remember his sacrifice, I want you to think of the cup that he said to the Samaritan woman, will you give me a drink out of that? And I want you, as you think about leaving here today, to to think about what is the next step God wants you to do? Is there somebody you need to invite to sit down and have a cup of coffee with or a meal with where you're going to share life and say, I want to know about your life. I want to know about your experience and to begin to build a relationship and to begin to say, you know, I need to make some changes in my own life. The good news is God took us as we are, sinful and fallen, but he loved us enough not to just leave us like we were, but he calls us to change. So as we're reminded of the love of God, I want you to think as you walk out of here today, what does God want to change in my life? The blood of Jesus Christ, drink it in remembrance of him. Let me close us in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you demonstrated to us how precious each and every life is that was created in your image. Father, forgive us for those times that, that we as imperfect and fallen people have, have not seen others as you see them, internally and worthy of eternal life. So, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to be your instruments, your hands and feet, your mouthpiece of reconciliation? Would you send us into the world, Lord, as your people to share the good news of the grace of God? In Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen. We're going to sing a song as we close called Good, Good Father. And it reminds